This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Rival Investigators. Mapping Lovecraft Cities. From Sandbox to Story. And the White Doe of Sertorius. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books, Play for Players, Run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive once more welcome us to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, ooh, look at that. We have our tablets out and we're not being warned by the GM to put them back away. And oh, look, our, our miniatures, instead of holding morning stars and flails, are holding... Dragonov sniper rifles and glocks because we are playing modern day gaming and we are indeed getting ready to play modern day gaming like you do by preparing some NPCs or are they NPCs? Perhaps they are the shadowy rivals of your PCs. They are but moving through history. This, this Robin, this is history. In another life, could we have called them friend? <laughs> well, I, I think technically. Uh, we're still going to be riffing a group of uh, uh, GMCs or NPCs, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and this, as you suggest, is uh, make up a rival group of investigators or modern adventurers or, or what have you. Uh, we're going to be a little vague about what the uh, genre is exactly, but it assumes that you are competent modern agents. And along come this other group of competent modern agents to get in your way. And before we start to uh, detail them, uh, let's ask ourselves why you would have them show up. Uh, there's a little bit of a hazard in this group in that it's a whole group of characters who show up at once. Uh, so maybe the first thing you want to do is, as you have your reason for an equivalent sort of mirror group of your characters to show up, to make sure that they are met separately or in small groups so that it's not a big, long thing where they're interacting with five different people, uh, if you can possibly avoid it. Uh, Ken, do you have uh, reasons to use a gang of, uh, a team of rivals as it were in a game, or uh, pitfalls to avoid? The reasons to use them are that uh, you want to sort of either uh, play with that super great fun concept that people do in your quality films like Fast and the Furious 6, where there's a shadow team to the family uh, that happened in Leverage a good deal, and it's it's a great way to sort of Put the characters in the mirror. If your characters are, or if your players are like my players, there is a moment at which they speculate loudly to themselves that perhaps they're the NPCs in a <laughs> game in which the actual virtuous and clever PCs are operating. And then sometimes they try and guess which of the NPCs in the already existing game are the actual uh, player characters in the game that is not turning rapidly into a disaster area. And uh, that's all good fun, but it can also cause uh, you can bring them in either as a dark mirror to let your players seem light, or you can bring them in as a light mirror to let your players say, oh yeah, we have maybe skated a little too close to the edge here. What with all that torturing that guy to find out where he parked his car and other things. And so we, we should, you know, uh, get right with the Lord. So they can, I guess, be your Lance White or your Belloc is what I'm saying. Right. And uh, like Belloc, 
uh, they want the thing that you want. Right. And so that might well be, uh, you know, they might be a rival team of bounty hunters trying to get the same fugitive that you want. They uh, could be private investigators hired by someone you don't quite trust. And uh, maybe they're on the up and up, but you don't know if their client is. Or uh, they could be, you know, another team that's been brought in in the same organization and uh, you've... Uh, have two sort of rival arms of the same organization. And so you've got that sort of jurisdictional thing. Or, right. They're the, they're the rich fat kid team from across the lake. Right. Or depending on how Baroque your uh, setting is that they are working for another organization that is nominally an ally of the organization that you work for, but not entirely working across uh, the same purpose. Right. If you, if you're Delta green, they're Pisces, for example. Right. Or, you know, you're the American investigators and you've shown up, in Liverpool, and it turns out, well, you're on the turf of another group of investigators who don't necessarily want you there. And with that preamble out of the way, I generated some names randomly using a tool online, and some of them are kind of evocative and maybe indicate something about their characters. So the first name that we have here, the fact that it's first on the list suggests that she is the team leader in some way. Right. And just the fact that there is a leader of that team uh, is a, probably a strong contrast with the team of player characters. Uh, but her name is Kelly Kelly. And the first name is uh, K-E-L-L-I-E. And the last name is K-E-L-L-Y. And, and I, I imagine her already like smashing some mook's head into a car door saying, I-E, get it right. <laughs> yes. And so uh, you said my that, name wrong. Smash. Right. Just the fact that she uh, walked proud with this somewhat eccentric name. This ridiculous uh, name. Suggest something about her. Did your mom randomly generate your name using some kind of tool? Oh my God, she's got a gun. (laughs) Um, But in real life, uh, I I know a woman who for many years, her name was Gail Gale because her first name was Gail and she married uh, somebody whose last name was Gail. And he must have been really, really great in order for her to overcome the obvious reluctance that you would have to wind up with a, a multiple homophone name. Uh, well, let, let's stick to our fictional characters. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, because uh, there is probably no Mr. Kelly that Kelly Sinkowitz married. I think that she's, um, unmarried and has to be so because of the rigors of her investigative job. And she's really more married to the, that team of, of goofs that she, uh, runs, I think. Which in that case means that her parents, Called her Kelly Kelly. Yes. So what does that tell us about her upbringing? I think she was brought up, um, and let's stick with our, our sort of nominally British, because that way you get a, a nice polyglot bunch of names. But unless you are British, you, you can easily understand why they're the rivals of our heroes, because they are the hated British. Now, if you're well, the, British the, the, and the your team is British. The names coming up are not very British. Well, I think the, we're gonna neither are British of- names nowadays, Robin. It's a new world. Okay. All right. Anyhow... My larger point is that I think her dad, Sergeant Kelly of the SAS, named her that specifically so she would get good at fighting. I think it's a boy named Sue thing, except she's a girl named Kelly. Okay. Has she uh, embraced the obstacles that her uh, father has put in her path, or does she uh, resent them? Is she showing pop-up, or is she following in his footsteps? Well, as if she's going to be a villain, and we, and we want to sell this to Hollywood, she's got to have daddy issues, right? So... I think she's probably, you know, because he was a straight and narrow SAS guy, I think that's why she is on the shadowy side of the law. Either she's working for a a shadowy uh, government group that he would never have worked with, like the Increment, or she is actually out there bellocking and and stealing artifacts and getting it done. Right. And so she's the somewhat embittered, uh, kind of resentful, but driven team leader who always has something to prove. And that's why... Uh, even though maybe she's not nominally a villain, maybe she's not uh, evil in any way, but she just wants something that the rest of the team wants, that she is going to outdo them. She's going to spot the person in the team who's the alpha and set about proving her dominance over uh, her or him. And so uh, next on the list is Saul Bird. Uh, We have a a team leader. And so uh, what's the uh, sort of uh, I guess we have our right-hand man uh, sort of character. Uh, the name Saul implies uh, Jewish heritage. So let's turn that on its head. Let's do something unexpected. And rather than uh, casting, uh, say, a Saul Rubinek type in, in the role of sort of a communications guy, which is the obvious dumb idea you have when you see that name, yep. uh, let's uh, make him a, a, a big, a burly, uh, let's make him the brick uh, every... every uh, Team of rivals needs someone who can uh, punch out the uh, punch outer on the other team. Exactly, and so uh, 
uh, he possibly uh, liaised for a while with Israeli intelligence and uh, has this hard-bitten attitude. He's your uh, kind of uh, stoic, uh, no-nonsense, can-I-break-their-arms-now uh, kind of guy. And he has a, a sort of a, a killer stare, and he's the big intimidating member of the team. Work for you? Yeah. No, I love it. I, I love that uh, Saul Bird was um, either ex-Mossad or ex-whatever uh, the—I forgot what it is. It's the Amos, Amos something or other, but the uh, Israeli Army um, Special Forces Unit. Uh, so something where he, he, he's broken a lot of uh, body parts out in the desert somewhere, and now he's in there, and maybe the desert is still in his heart. Well, I see a sort of a, a theme beginning to develop. Someone tied to a British intelligence, now someone tied to the Mossad. So maybe this is a freelance group, each of which uh, has a connection to a different intelligence agency before they uh, all banded together to do whatever it is they're doing. And I think they've been assembled either by Kelly or by the shadowy bad guy to become specifically a counter team to our heroes. So maybe just Kelly and Saul are the ones who have worked together and have each other's back. And that... Uh, as in a uh, Ross Thomas novel, makes them uh, the most powerful people in the criminal world because they know one person who will never betray them. Right. And that makes the rest of the group somewhat unpredictable because... They're wild cards. Yes. Their loyalty to uh, Kelly and Saul is not necessarily guaranteed. That gives the players an in. It can possibly investigate these other investigators and learn that and get some sort of piece of leverage to use to uh, um, operate on the team. And since we've got the idea that uh, people are coming in from different uh, rival groups, and uh, we've got some evocative random names here. The next name is Olga Andrews, and so this suggests someone who's of mixed uh, Russian and uh, English or Russian and American heritage. So what intelligence connection would she be likely to have that would also uh, tell us something about her role in this group of investigators? I like the idea that Olga Andrews was brought up as the daughter of sleeper agents in America, right? That there was KGB sleeper agents in America and they raised Olga as their daughter and they got her into the beginnings of the American uh, national security establishment. You know, she was like accepted into the CIA and was being transferred into um, uh, special projects or um, uh, the SA, the special activities division. And then right as that was beginning to happen, you had the brief Yeltsin spring in 91 and she got bounced because just enough information came out of the KGB that they were like, oh, yeah, and you're the daughter of KGB sleeper agents. Thanks. Take a hike. And so she's got ties to the CIA, but also ties to what is now probably the SVR, right? The, uh, the, the, the KGB successor agency. And so no one is quite sure, much as her binational name indicates, where her true loyalties might lie because she was, after all, raised in America. And we don't know how much of that rubbed off. And maybe she's not sure. She knows she doesn't like the CIA, but there's no reason she doesn't like the American heroes per se. Right. That also suggests her portfolio in the group. Uh, she grew up her whole life uh, either knowingly playing a role or uh, later in life discovered that her parents were playing a role and were not what they seemed. And so she's the face person. She's the imposter. She's the one who uh, can pass herself off as anyone and can read anybody and find out who do you want me to be? I'll be that person. And so that, yes. implies and in honor of uh, Martin Landau's passing, she is the mistress of disguise and can appear in any sort of physical form. Even that even androgynous, she can, she can uh, look like a, a, a young uh, man of military age uh, or a middle-aged man of military age. I guess since she was active in 91, although she's a mistress of disguise, she could look like a young man of military age if she wanted to. So while she may or may not be um, uh, full on Tilda Swinton, she is still capable of, of switching gender, at least in the field. Right. And that then suggests that when the players first uh, player characters first meet her, they don't know it's her. They first meet her in disguise. Mm -hmm. Maybe they meet her in disguise a bunch of times. And then only the third time do they uh, get the clue they need to discover that this person is also that person. And she's part of the same team as uh, Kelly and Saul. Uh, next on the list, uh, a quite quotidian name, Heidi Roberts. Uh, what comes to mind uh, with uh, Heidi? Well, I think with every team, uh, we, we need to start filling in the rest of the team. And every team now in the modern era needs the hacker tech Barney, right? Yeah. To continue our Mission Impossible thing. So I would like Heidi to be our Barney. 
and she is the, the, the mistress of the computer. She goes into the duct work. So she's the burglar break in and hacker character. And that gets her out of the van. And so, and she can do all of those things. I, so if she's the super hacker, I guess the, the TV version is she's young and cute, but maybe in the real world, she's a middle-aged woman of, of matronly appearance. And you don't think, oh, this is going to be the hacker break-in person. But sure enough, she totally is because she rules. I, I dig that. But the name Heidi tells me something that I think conjures up a fun uh, reversal, which is that uh, she was raised by her uh, rich patrons to be, you know, the girl who had the super expensive sweet 16 party and was supposed to go to a good college and marry into the uh into the aristocracy and so she's supposed to be you know the uh member of the future first wives of america club and uh uh, be this uh sweet blonde uh girl and so that she you know outwardly uh has every opposite quality of what you imagine when you imagine the hacker character who's you know either uh, you know, sort of punkish or, uh, you know, has blue hair or, or, or what have you. And she looks, you know, just like a, a typical uh, sort of entitled uh, young white girl. So she's a Regina George, the hacker. Yes. But right. then it uh, just turns out that she, uh, you know, takes part in that uh, culture because it's the route to power. It's how she was uh, recruited because she has all of this uh, influence as well. So she can also be the, not only the computer network, but the social network person. Yeah, and and that we can uh, have her do a lot of social engineering, which is what a lot of hacking is. Because who doesn't trust uh who doesn't trust uh, Rachel McAdams after all? Now, has she got connections to an intelligence agency, or is she just someone who got brought in? Is is it one of those deals where the NSA caught her, and in order because her parents are super influential, they can't toss her in Gitmo, so they have to say, "All right, but you're doing the occasional job for us." Type thing. I feel like she uh, w- went to an Ivy League school where she was expected to marry well and instead excelled in her classes and, and got recruited. Right. And so she may have been recruited by any one of the of the shadowy uh, three initial agencies, and we don't know which one, or do we want to say? Well, in fact, I think she's the one where the rest of the group doesn't know that she's still a single agent. She's right. actually the, the mole, and she's still, you know, she wasn't bounced from the NSA at all. Right. She's been sent out on field work to infiltrate this group. Right. And so she's potentially, uh, she's the one who the, uh, the player characters are the most likely to underestimate, especially if you give her a bit of a valley girl accent mm-hmm. or just have her up talk a bit. And then she's the one who turns out at the end, uh, she pulls out the Glock and points it at uh, Kelly and Saul. And uh, she's the one who uh, lets the players get away. Saves their bacon if necessary. Yeah. And maybe doesn't take down Kelly or Saul because it'd be fun to have them come back, but at least gets the players out of a tight jam. Right. She, she doesn't shoot Kelly or Saul. She, you know, it's that uh, uh, mystery arrest at the end. Exactly. Uh, finally, we have uh, Gustavo Ortega. Uh, so we've got, uh, let's uh, see who we're missing uh, portfolio wise. We've got the leader, we got the brick, we got the uh, master of disguise, we have the uh, hacker. Are we uh, needing a a gun bunny? A, a, a yeah, a I think I think vehicle? we need a we, we need a we need a gun guy, um, right? Or, and a wheelman. He's he's yes. both because we don't have either of those, and it'd be nice to you know put all the machines. the The big machines are Gustavo's. The little machines are Heidi's. That's how we can do it. Right, and so his name suggests some cliches. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the cliched way to do it is that uh, you know he was. Uh, a Mexican federale until it got too hot for him. But again, that's the cliche. That's just uh, starting with his ethnicity and building on that. So what, how do we turn that on its head? Who is Gustavo? Uh, what unexpected route would he take to being a car guy and a gun guy? Okay. I think he begins a car guy just because he's, um, you know, he, he grew up in a, in a big city where car guying is a thing. And since he's Gustavo Ortega, maybe he grew up in India, right? Maybe he's uh, Portuguese, not uh, Spanish. So it'd be probably Gustau or something like that, or Spanish intermarried to Portuguese. But he grows up in India, and he's maybe half Indian, half uh, Spanish, or half Portuguese. And he grew up on the streets of Goa, and he um, uh, learned to to jack cars and drive them around and be cool. Or maybe he was just, you know, grew up uh, in wealth and privilege and had an awesome car and learned to drive cars and be cool. But either way, the uh, Indian R&I got him because 
he was so good at driving and was a great uh, counter urban terrorist uh, guy for them and uh, joined the the black cats the the uh, elite sort of uh, operatives of of India and uh, did a lot of uh, bollywood style driving around and shooting terrorists and then you know just tapped out he, his 10 years were up or whatever we don't maybe know why he left india he just doesn't really want to go back there and that's why he's with kelly and saul right and if we want a, a sort of a, a unique thing that he can do in the adventure, his love of cars and or guns is something that he can bond with another of the uh, player characters with. Uh, and, uh, you know, oh, that's have you uh, have you customized that? Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. yeah each fast. time he shows up, he's in a, a different and better car with a different and better gun. Right. And that, uh, you know, he seems like the super friendly one, but then. Uh, because he seems super friendly, he'll be the one who uh, turns out to be the uh, the cold-blooded killer in the mix. Right, the borderline sociopath, because he was putting down uh, terrorists in, in what they called meetings in India, where it's like, oh, this guy probably is too connected to get a, a crime, so we're gonna have a we're gonna have a meeting and shoot him in the street. Well, I think we've got a, a well-rounded uh, team of different people, many of whom who present an initial first impression and have something beyond that. We've got your. Uh, each has its own role in the portfolio and, more importantly, a possible role or means of approach uh, that you can meet them differently in the case of the scenario, which indicates that it's a time uh, before we are beaten to the punch by a rival duo of podcasters <gasps> to head through this commercial. Kelly and Saul talk about stuff. No! 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 And to our next segment. The Kickstarter concluded on July 21st. But the dread pages of the play called The King in Yellow aren't so easy to escape. If you missed the campaign for the Yellow King role-playing game from Pelgrane Press, you can still drill a hole through reality and rectify that error now in Backerkit. Based on the influential horror tales of Robert W. Chambers, this latest gumshoe flagship title sends your players on a mind-bending journey through twisted histories and alternate selves. From Belle Epoque Paris in 1895 to Europe's shattering 1947 Continental War. To the ruins of the Castain regime to a world like our own, or nearly so. When I played this, I was the architecture student. Help us add even more content to all four of the core books, which nestle together as a single product in one elegant, not to mention magnetic, slipcase. We got chased by a spider statue. Also snap up our gorgeous found object collage Paris source book, Absinthe in Carcosa. My character drank copiously and engaged in the witticisms of the doomed. And a novel by yours truly. Dare to look at the sinister link in the show notes. The compass rose that looks like a broke lion head, the mercator projection, and perhaps... The sea serpent splashing about off in the blue edges of the map tell us that we've once more entered the cartography hut where we talk about maps and things mapping related and we tip the hat to our sponsored pro fantasy software who make the campaign cartography program that uh, I use uh, so often and that you should check out. But in this case, uh, Ken, maybe you're the one who has to use a bit of campaign cartographer because you've assigned yourself a task a task related to the book you are currently kickstarting and that How odd. yes and that task is to map lovecraft cities uh, before you get into that perhaps you should remind our listeners about the book you are currently kickstarting we are currently kickstarting over at atomic overmind tour to lovecraft the destinations which is about the settings in lovecraft and how lovecraft uses them and develops them and of course famously for lovecraft he developed some cities and in each of Arkham and Innsmouth, he mapped them, although the map of Arkham, I believe, is the one that survives. The map of Innsmouth is apparently, according to S.T. Joshi, uh, written in pencil and uh, impossible to reproduce. It, it's too crummy, so you can't find that, or you can't find it easily uh, online. Maybe now, with uh, better scanners, someone has reproduced it, but uh, it's, it's easy to find maps of Arkham and Innsmouth online, but finding Lovecraft's maps, I think, adds a certain extra touch. And in uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of the game, but uh, the short story, Shadow Over Innsmouth, you can map Innsmouth from that. I know because I did it when I read it when I was a youth. So that's 
that's the thing that we know immediately is that Lovecraft knew what the cities looked like. Right. So uh, we know that he made a map uh, so they can refer to it and uh, create a sense of sort of spatial relationships for his characters and give them a sense of uh, verisimilitude. So how do you look at a text, assuming you don't have the map that the author made, and begin the process of making the same map that he used, uh, assuming he made one at all? Because one uh, challenge, of course, is that if you're making a map based on a fictional work, that it may well be that the writer didn't particularly care exactly where all of the bits of the city fit together and um, maybe just uh, took uh, point form notes, maybe didn't draw it out, or just sort of envisioned it and, and you can't actually uh, map out a route of a city. But assuming you can, assuming someone with a geographical sense of Lovecraft, what is your first step in creating the map that he either had in his head or that he actually uh, wrote down in really faint, unreproducible pencil? Um, you can begin by making sure that, uh, you know, you, you go through the text. Ideally, if you've got it in digital form, it's even easier because you can look for words like east, north, west, south, start writing down geographical relationships. And uh, if the character walks and just, and mentions streets, you know that he's walking probably in a straight line. So, you know, that the streets go in that order. If there's a, a ocean or a lake somewhere, you will eventually know what direction it is. Or if, for example, it's in Massachusetts, you know that the ocean is probably to the east because that's the direction of oceans. And even Lovecraft is not going to pull a fast one on that. So with Innsmouth specifically, Lovecraft goes to a, a very great deal of trouble to sort of provide the full description of the city because he needs to do that to establish that the character has, yes, sort of walked all over town because the character is a ambly tourist type guy and B, because in Lovecraft's mind, that is the completely realistic thing to do when you've entered a, a new town to you in New England for the first time. And then provides the sort of visual cues that the reader is picking up on that tell you this is not a, a, a good place. It, it's full of evil fishmen. But it's also when he describes you walking down the street he, or Olmsted walking down the street, he says he's walking down, he's walking down Main Street or he's walking past Federal or whatever. And you can literally map out his progress by just listing street names and listing directions and then applying those uh, to each other. So, so when the narrator goes into the, the, the sort of the nice neighborhood, he lists uh, Northern Broad, Washington, Lafayette, Adams streets. And when he lists them in that order, you can say, all right, he's probably encountering them in that order. And now you have part of your street grid. And it's just a matter of making your own sketch literally in pencil, because you don't know if this, if the author is going to contradict himself or add another detail that you've forgotten. Like, and of course there's the large viaduct that goes through the whole town. You're, oh, right. all right. <laughs> and uh, you sort you sort of sketch them in as you read the story and then just don't read it for atmosphere, read it for these picky, uni little details of direction and uh, street names and building locations. And, Again, Lovecraft being Lovecraft will tell you where the buildings are and you can begin to sort of uh, parse out how the city looks. And you with uh, Innsmouth, because the character does walk all over it, you have a pretty good sense of the whole street grid or at least the whole street grid of downtown Innsmouth, right? Right. It's very cooperative of Lovecraft to have characters that, like him, like to rock, walk around and check out their urban geography. Yeah. So it's sort of laid out for you in a way it might not be in another uh, author's work because... Now, I guess Lovecraft is sort of setting up the geography for the big chase at the end. Uh, in a way, he's doing what John Woo does when he creates a big set-piece action scene, which is that uh, very unobtrusively, the opening bit of that sequence will show you where everything is so that you have a, a sense of the mental geography where everything uh, interrelates. And so uh, you've got someone very geographically minded who you're basing uh, your map on. Uh, now, obviously, it's going to be more of a challenge with another writer who is less concerned about having the character show up, obviously engage in a walking tour. Uh, you would be more uh, discouraged from doing that today as a writer than you would be in Lovecraft's uh, time, <laughs> that you would get a pretty obvious, this is just a bunch of ham-fisted exposition about the geographical layout, which doesn't isn't even all that interesting. Cut that bit out. So would you do this with writers other than Lovecraft? Is Lovecraft sort of the uh, perfect example of the uh, author who uh, who's w deliberately sets out to create the conditions that allow you to create maps based on his stories? Well, um, I think that people probably can, and I'm sure someone has, map, for example, the Yachtnet to Pawfaw County 
in Mississippi. I don't know that any of the conurbations therein are big enough to necessarily require maps, because my my impression, at least, is that most of the happenings there happen out away from the the city into the sort of rural Dunwichy parts of Yachnapafa. But you could certainly is, is Faulkner's um, yeah, imaginary is, county. is Faulkner's imaginary county in the south. You don't have a lot of people nowadays that set things in fully imaginary cities on earth that seems to have now if you're setting things in an imaginary city you set it in a a fantasy land of some kind right and it's still much more in vogue in fantasy for you to get a a map map in the book that shows you where everything is and it's you're much more likely to assume that the author uh, mapped out his world and possibly ran pathfinder in it for a while yeah and so uh i guess the next question is is lovecraft also the author uh for whom you would most want and need to do this, that for um, most other writers, it's not an exercise that uh, you would have to bother with because you would just, you know, get out your map of LA uh, and do what uh, several people have made, you know, uh, maps of uh, Chandler's Los Angeles. And so Mm -hmm. you can see every location, uh, both imaginary and real. And you can also see where the the real meets the imaginary. So, okay. This is probably the point at which we should plug things, uh, not by us, by other people. Uh, there's a book called an Atlas of fantasy by JB post, which is mostly your sort of Tolkieny maps of countrysides and, and continents, but has the occasional, uh, city map in it. And obviously there is the dictionary of imaginary places by, uh, Alberto Manguel and Gianni Guadalupe, which you can find, in many editions and has many, many maps of cities, including Arkham, as it happens, and uh, also locate uh, maps of various districts as well. And, and it provides some descriptions of the other places sort of picked out for their geographical qualities. So if you are wondering, what does the city of Bekla from Richard Adams' novel Shardik look like? There you go. You're the lucky winner. You don't have to depend on teasing out an entire novel worse than Richard Adams. Uh, and uh, I, there isn't a map, oddly enough, of Barchester, which is the first great pretend city by Anthony Trollope. But I don't know if Trollope gives enough geographical detail because reading <laughs> Trollope is something I'm saving for my retirement. <laughs> it might be more interesting to read Trollope uh, simply with the geographical uh, eye in mind. So I guess the, the question uh, that I have is, what insights did you gain from the process of doing this that fed into uh, Tour de Lovecraft, the destinations. What is the, and I guess the, the bigger question there is why do this? What's yeah. the benefit of doing this yourself instead of waiting for someone else to make a map of Arkham? Well, the, the benefit is, I, I, I grant you, the benefit is less now than it was in 1980 mumble when I read Shadow of Innsmouth in the first place, because back in those days, you couldn't go online, type map of Innsmouth into a search engine and get nine perfectly good maps of Innsmouth. Yeah. If you uh, wanted Lovecraftiana, you had to make it yourself. You had to make it. Back in those days, it was like we churned our own butter and we made our own Lovecraft maps and we were happier and our forearms were stronger. The The advantage, I, I think the, the sort of the payoff for me doing it when I did it is that, first of all, you get a really good sense of the setting. Because you, you've mapped it, literally. You have a, a really good sense of where everything is. So it seems you, realer to you. Once yeah, you do that. it seems a, a very in the moment. It, it, it all hangs together, assuming that the author is any good at it. And Lovecraft, of course, was very good at it. And you get a understanding of, uh, locations and, and their relationships to each other, which for a story like Innsmouth, which is all about a chase across the city, you kind of need that information if you're going to make any sense of it, or if it's not just going to be a bunch of random blah, blah. And the thing that you learn when you make that map is no, it's not random blah, blah. Lovecraft cared as much about a map of Innsmouth as any Lovecraftian does. And that's not always the case with Lovecraft's details, but you can tell that he totally wanted to make sure that he got his streets in the right order and didn't screw that up and that he got the the town uh, established correctly and that didn't contradict each other. And so having that available in his mind meant that that was a very important thing to him for the story. And once you sort of interrogate that and say, why, why is that location important? You begin to realize, oh, all of his locations are important. It's just that he didn't need to make a map of Providence. He already had one, but that his, his sort of, notion of where things are is is crucial to making Lovecraft's stories work in a way that they maybe aren't even for Faulkner, where it's the social milieu has to be right. But I'll bet, I don't know if Faulkner cares one way or the other if 
Snopes' house is north or south of, of the of the main drag, right? Right. Well, he didn't have anybody getting chased over rooftops either. That we know of. <laughs> the lost Faulkner masterpiece. Uh, parkour, parkour. Yes. So uh, I think it's time for us to uh, leap over some rooftops to our next segment. the werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like... Trung Boy. Alexander Zimmerman. Andrew Jones. Ben Dilworth. And Vulpine. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Patreon backer John Scheib asks Ken and Robin, Are there simple tricks for transitioning from an OSR sandbox mentality for GMing to one that works for a gumshoe or hillfolk game? Uh, Robin, those are two very different kinds of games, are they not? Gumshoe and Hillfolk, not necessarily OSR and Gumshoe, or even... Yes, they're, they're prob probably more opposite one another in terms of what you need to do as a GM than an OSR is to uh, a Gumshoe, certainly. Yes, and I would argue that an OSR sandbox mentality is the ideal mentality to begin with for a Gumshoe game. Because a sandbox OSR game, OSR Old School Renaissance, F Old School F20, playing back the way God intended with uh, level limits and tiny few hit points, the, uh, the, the sandbox mentality is that adventure can be anywhere and you have to sort of provide indications and effects of those adventures for the world to seem real. And that's what you're doing in Gumshoe. You, uh, clues are everywhere. You have to provide information and effects for the clues to seem real and connected to the world. So the habits of building a connected world out of disparate data that you get running, um, uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess or Castles and Crusades or any of the cool old o OSR games, they're the same exact habits you need in, uh, in a Gumshoe game. And I, I don't know if we've on this podcast or not talked about the parallels between dungeon plot construction and mystery plot construction. But if not, we'll talk about it in another episode. But they're very similar. If I was going to define a difference between the two things, it is that in the OSR style, any story that occurs is supposed to be essentially emergent. That by going through the environment and poking things in whatever order you choose to poke them and whatever order you choose to move through the environment may give rise to something that takes on the elements of the story, and because story is very powerful, it may then uh, begin to yank away the sandboxness of your game and impose itself on on uh, the players, uh, either with the help of you, the GM, or with you, the GM, trying to actively hinder it. Whereas in something like Gumshoe, the idea of there being a narrative structure, uh, because it is a mystery, is implicit, because a mystery begins with a question... Uh, which then leads to another series of questions and ultimately the uh, big answer at the end. And so, you know, you can very happily go around and kick down a bunch of uh, uh, dungeon doors or 
explore a space station and find all the cool things in it and occasionally fight things and gather resources and uh, never feel that anything has been uh, taken away from you. But if you're engaged in a mystery story, you have a set of assumptions as players built into that, which is there's an ending, and the ending may be improvised during play, as it is in Inspectors, or the assumption may be that there is a puzzle that needs to be solved, as there is in Gumshoe. So I do think that the simple trick that you want to bring in once you... Uh, move out of the sandbox and into the idea of you are trying to uncover a particular narrative is a sense of story. And the idea that the uh, beginning of a story uh, poses a question that the end of the story resolves. And then in between, you've got a series of turns that develop and amplify that question. And the turn may be quite radical. Uh, it may take you in what seems to be a completely unexpected direction, but uh, if it is a classical story, the surprising things also take you to the, the question at hand. So I would start out by asking, what is the question that my adventure poses? What are the possible answers to that question, given that, unlike the creation of solitary passive fiction, the main ingredient of creating a story, the characters, is out of your hands as a GM? Are there other uh, uh, simple tricks that if you're trying to move in a more story-focused direction that you would start to add to your toolkit, Ken? Um, I think that one of the things that, like you say, story is emergent. Uh, it happens even when there is literally no narrative. Like if you're watching a football game or a hockey game, you immediately start telling yourself a story about what's going on in the field, even though... I, I believe they're giving 110%. Exactly. I think that I think they're really going to come back from this because that makes narrative sense. Uh, no, it doesn't. They're just going to get pounded or whatever. Um, and then you, you impose narrative on it. And even at the end, when it was clearly a bunch of random nonsense, i.e. a White Sox game, you can simply, <laughs> you, you, you tell yourself a, a, a story. Oh, well, they, 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 they started strong, but then they, they tagged out and you could see that, um, uh, that the fielding wasn't good because it was probably, you know, and, and you start building the story of that game in your, in your heart, even though, or your head. <laughs> if you're an idiot and, and you start um, uh, sort of telling yourself a little tale and then all of the random games become the story of the season and story is just an emergent property of people and it doesn't matter what you're looking at but if you're looking at a series of contests it's almost impossible not to turn that into a story so lean into that right yeah. and, and so uh, the thing that's different though about watching a sporting event uh, than being a gm is that you have some control over where it's going if right. you have absolute control you're probably trying the patience of your players. You're narrating a story. <laughs> yes. Um, I didn't want to say you're doing it wrong because there are some groups where the GM is basically hurting them through a narrative and they love it. But let's assume that you're trying to do something that's a, a little more interactive so that as events in a role-playing game will start to go sideways and diverge from what you thought the narrative was. And so as they diverge, the question is, while maintaining player freedom... How can I have these events that nobody expected would occur? How can I have these events also in some way answer the central question posed at the beginning of the story? And so if the question is, will this ragtag band of heroes finally get it together enough to save the town? Uh, will they, you know, is this a story of redemption? Uh, you know, and you may have thought in your head that the redemption would occur when they uh, discover who it is who's uh, running the uh, kidnapping ring, uh, well, they take things in a different direction. And um, you can, uh, in a mystery, you can kind of, every time you get a clue, that sort of points them back toward the answer to the question that you had in mind. Goodness me, another kidnapping. What could that right. mean? Uh, but in something that's more uh, freeform, that isn't uh, imposing a mystery structure, you can think, well, okay, they're ignoring the kidnapping ring and they're going off uh, in the direction of, uh, you know, this mine that is uh, poisoning people. So, okay, how do I put their uh, redemption story into this new thing that's kind of arising, half improvised, uh, as if a sandbox sprung up in the middle of my nice, neat story? Right. Um, one of the metaphors that I like to use for a sandbox is, um, you, you know, players can dig anywhere in a sandbox you want, but it's your job as the GM to have buried a bunch of cool plastic dinosaurs there for them to find. So... If the dinosaurs are in uh, matching colors, then you have a pattern. And so 
if even if everything else about your game is the same, if you just roll a die four and say, which of the four big bad plots is this encounter part of? And then you retroactively justify it and maybe leave a clue to that effect. Or, you know, you paint the orc shields with the with, with the arms of Winterfell and you're like, oh, Winterfell's behind this because they gave those orc shields. And you know what a shielded orc is? He's one armor class harder to hit. Uh, we hate that. And so uh, you begin to assemble your own notion of what the conspiracy is. And you, the GM, may never have figured out what Winterfell was up to. You just know that they're mean. And the player's figure it out because they have to figure out what the weak point of Winterfell is or, or how they can interfere with his activities. Yeah. And, and so another simple trick that I would use is that in an ongoing uh, campaign or series, when you are prepping for your next session, just ask yourself if this was a really satisfying story written by a, a single author or team of authors, where would it most likely go? Uh, and that may be, to, oh, yeah, that everyone would love it if, if that happens. Because one thing about role-playing is that people are actually eager to recreate obvious uh, narratives and to recapitulate tropes because they're inside of them. And it makes it satisfying in a way that they might be yelling at the screen if they were just sitting there uh, watching it. Yeah. Or, or you can also ask yourself, what is the unexpected thing that can happen that would also answer the question? Now, chances are, in a truly interactive game where the player's choices legitimately have impact on what's uh, going to happen, that you might not do A or B, but the process of thinking of what A or B is has given you a fallback to sort of nudge them toward if they don't know where they're going, which is very often the case even with players who uh, espouse a desire for agency. Not all of them know what to do with it, really. Right. But also if, uh, you know, so if things do... Uh, go kind of pear-shaped, you can, uh, you know, impose a different, less pear-like shape on it by remembering what it is that you thought you might be moving toward. But th just the process of thinking that may also enable you to uh, come up with a better way to uh, do something that honors the choices that the players are making that is a surprise to everyone. Uh, apparently, I have a lot more to say about connecting OSR and Gumshoe. Should we uh, skip into connecting Hillfolk or just keep connecting so Gumshoe. The, the trick with Hillfolk, very briefly, is don't prepare. Yeah, right. Because you can't. Right. Um, it won't let you. Which, which again, very similar to OSR Pure Sandbox, where it's just While random being monsters. And highly narrative and, uh, you know, taking part in the structure, but it does everything for you. And as a GM, you just sort of have to sit back and um, you are, in fact, asking the question, well, if this was an HBO series, what would be the cool scene that would happen next? And then it will be. It will come your turn, and when you uh, are framing the scene that you get to frame as the GM in the sequence where all the players are also framing scenes, then you have the character come out and confront uh, character B, which is the big moment that everyone would be expecting as viewers. So even there, and of you course, are, when we say next on HBO, we mean in five episodes. We don't mean next. <laughs> uh, yes, dr drama system is. A little more consistently interesting. It's, it's more of an FX than a HBO, right. I think. Well, the structure of a drama system uh, game is that the uh, first half hour is like the middle of an HBO series where nothing is happening. And then everything starts to happen. Then the train comes. I guess yes. the, the habit that you would want to build in standard um, F20 or even OSR that you can build up for... Uh, and use for Hillfolk is the habit of making your NPCs really living people with their own agendas that also relate to and are ideally sort of athwart the main adventurers. Now it's trickier to do it because if they're super athwart, you can get stabbed a lot more in uh, Lamentation of the Flame Princess than you can in Hillfolk. So maybe don't super athwart them or give them a really strong reason in game why you can't stab them. He's my brother. Uh, he's a powerful Lord of the Elves, and if I do it, I'm getting everyone in trouble, whatever. But make sure that the characters that you put in there are not just uh, things to hit and ignore or ways to trade gold for magic swords, but are people that have their own emotional agenda and that that emotional agenda is relevant to the player, not in a sense of, well, as long as I'm getting a magic sword, I guess I have to listen to this guy's problem with his daughter. It's right. like... You know, the specific thing that involves the players because it's connected to their uh, past or to their actions. Well, it, even in a game where the players mow through uh, Game Master characters very quickly, you can still, as you design your next cohort of Game Master characters to come up against them, essentially do what we did in the first segment of this podcast, 
which is look for ways for the uh, characters you create to uh, not just exist on their own and have their own agendas, but ask yourself what interesting interaction will they have with the player characters, and are they foils to the player characters in some way? Do they reflect something about them? Uh, and they can be the you know super obvious you know evil doppelganger, or they can just be someone else doing the same job in a different way that. Uh, by definition, their interaction with the player characters will uh, throw that into uh, relief. This is something that we could uh, keep talking about, except that there's another segment uh, headed down the pike, and uh, we want to uh, get to it because it's uh, batting its cute little doe eyes at us. Literally. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotime tell us that we're once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is a conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. Although <gasps> he doesn't kill that many people, really, despite the way you frame some of your questions, Patreon backers. History kills people. History kills people. You're just there to watch. Time travelers don't kill people. History kills people. That's what you need to know. Yes. Now... We start this segment in, in various different ways, and this is an instance where every organization, no matter how exalted, even Time Incorporated, has people at the bottom of the org chart. Entry-level employees. Let's not call them drudges. No. It's not drudgery. W working for Time Incorporated is a sheer joy at all right, levels. Some people get to get in the time machine, and other people have to look at the reports of the people who get in the time machine. Yes. And sometimes, and I don't want to name any names or cast any aspersions, Sometimes those reports seem a little, shall we say, uh, skeletal. <laughs> I'd like to see those naysayers do better. When you are being shot at by a, by a recurve bow, it is not necessarily always the right time to fill in every single jot and tittle of the TPS 50 report. Right, but the, the Time Incorporated does have a room where you're supposed to sit and make your reports. And even there... Someone, not naming any names. If you had been in that room, you would know why no one wants to sit in it. Yes, I'm sure there's some sort of uh, time leakage or something. But I'm looking at one document here that was bumped up the uh, command chain as being... We've got to talk about their internal security, actually, at Time Incorporated. You have a lot of access. As having lacuna mm -hmm. in it, this particular report. And it just says uh, there's no header uh, on the mission. And then it just says under mission type, it says spontaneous slash emergency. Mm -hmm. um, which they want to point out is not one of the categories, and you haven't put in the numerical code. If there was and a then, numerical code, it wouldn't be spontaneous. Right. Think and people. In, in the little box where it says office use only, um, you've written, borrowed the white dough of Sertorius. So this brings us to the question that the... Uh, so it has our, everything you need. Our, our interns have. Well, first of all, I guess the first question is, who was Sertorius? He was a, a Roman general. Mm -hmm. uh, he was... a. Uh, Born in 126 BC, he made it all the way to 72 BC, uh, and uh, this was a set the scene here. This was a time of uh, not only external but internal conflict within Rome, and uh, Sertorius was a member of one of the factions, the Populars. And this was not like in Mean Girls where they were the popular kids in school, but this was the uh, more uh, sort of people-focused uh, side. And, and who was he fighting? He was fighting the Optimates, which would be the best ones, uh, or the good ones. 
So you can tell you've got the, the people who think that they're the best and the people who think that they represent the people. And as happens occasionally in history, uh, the people lost. <laughs> and so Sertorius, who was on the side of Cinna, the um, consul of the populars, got bounced out of uh, Rome by Sulla, who made himself dictator at the end or actually throughout that civil war. And when he got to Rome, he still had his army with him or he got to Spain. He still had his army with him and decided, well, I'll just declare myself proconsul. Uh, and the populars all voted for him to be proconsul and then were immediately he purged was popular by after Sulla. All. And, um, uh, he was. And, uh, uh, so he goes off to Spain where he had served before in the war and says, well, I'll just set myself up as proconsul and we'll wait for Sulla to burn himself out. And then I'll come back to Rome and live happily ever after. But it was not to be because I, I was waiting for something else to happen, but I guess I was waiting for Sulla and that's the problem. So, uh, he goes to, uh, Spain. He gets bounced out of Spain briefly by the Romans who march over the Pyrenees passes because the guy he sent to guard the passes didn't do the A plus job that you would like in that he didn't guard his back against people who were already at the passes. So pass guarding is a two way street people. It is a two way street. Literally. Um, that is the definition of passes. You have one job, but it has two directions. So he, t he takes his army off to North Africa where he conquers uh, Morocco, which at that time was Mauritania. Not now. Don't get confused. But as the guy who recently conquered something nearby, the Lusitanians, who were the people who lived in the western half of Spain and had just met the Romans and liked them about as well as everyone who just met the Romans, said, who do we have that can fight Romans? Look, there's a Roman. And he's uh, apparently mad at the other Romans. So they invited him back to Spain with the uh, what was left of his army to run them and fight the Romans for them. And sure enough, that's what he did. And he was so good at it that he did it for... Long about eight years, which seems very long when you realize that he's a guy who barely had any Romans and was uh, putting together sort of a ragtag team of of Spaniards of various stripes, uh, Lusitanians, um, uh, eventually Beticans, other uh, Celto-Iberian tribes, and building them into a guerrilla force with which to um, oppose the will of Rome, which by that time was the will of Sulla. Right. Now, European historians often oversympathize with Rome, uh, but there's a particular point in Roman history when the, uh, the Romans were... If you ever thought the Romans are, are the good guys at any point in the history of Rome, this ain't it. Yeah. Uh, they're on a big expansionist kick, and uh, basically they've got to continue conquering and looting uh, places, or their whole internal structure and economy is going to collapse. So basically, the, the Romans are the Klingons, and Sertorius is Worf. He's the good Klingon. Uh, but... Unlike the Klingons, Sertorius had a secret weapon, which brings us to your involvement in this story, because Sertorius had a magic deer. He had did. the white doe, and the white doe had powers of prophecy, and uh, uh, when necessary, he would trot out the white doe, and the white doe would, uh, I guess, probably not talk to people directly, but somehow Sertorius knew what it was predicting. Because the doe was, would talk to him in his dreams. Yes. That's yeah, how he that's, knew. That's where you want those talking to you. You don't want them interrupting you in your waking hours. You've got stuff to do. Uh, but while you're sleeping, you can multitask and talk to those. Right. And so he uh, secured the loyalty of his troops on a couple of different occasions by uh, invoking the authority of the white doe. Um, and this is where you come in, Ken, because according to this, as, as I said, some might say somewhat hastily filled in form, you borrowed the white doe of Sertorius. And so why... I put it back. Of course Everybody. you put it back. I that's put the it, thing that's about what time the word travel. borrowing means. People are such jerks. And you can put it back right at essentially at the same time that you borrowed it. So, well, it's, I mean, it's a little older, but no one knows. In Plutarch, uh, there is a description of the time that Sertorius lost the white doe. And he didn't know where it was, but just like I said, it came back. And he, um, uh, he then, because he'd been having some reverses at the hands of the Romans, because they were the ones with the army, and he was the ones with a, a band of ragtag rebels. Yes, he was the ragtag <laughs> underdog. And in history, we know what happens to ragtag underdogs. Unlike in underdogs. Star Wars, the Empire generally wins. Yeah. So, and, um, and about this time, there was another ragtag uh, uh, rebel named Spartacus, and yes. uh, didn't end well for him either. And, and a bunch of cool pirates who also got extirpated to the last man. And a guy who dated an Amazon. So what's not to love? It's, it's yes. a great time in history. Everyone, I recommend the first century BC as a place when hell is being let out for breakfast and fun is on the march. 
But that said, um, uh, the doe, uh, he, he hid the doe in a nearby swamp and then said, oh my goodness, if only the doe came back, then we could beat these Romans. And sure enough, the doe comes out of the swamp where it is released by a friendly time traveler and, uh, returns to his arms and everyone is like, yay, let's go beat the Romans. And then of course they don't because they are so pumped up with doe magic that they don't wait for Sertorius to lay an ambush and they charge in and get uh, most of their army killed. But it's a happy ending. Classic doe rebound problem. Classic doe rebound problem. But 75 BC can take care of itself as indeed it did. I needed the white doe because uh, during a, a different trip entirely, I noticed uh, the absence of a little something I like to call the Renaissance, Robin. I fixed the Renaissance with my dough. That's what I did. So, there you go. I hope that answers your question. I, I think that's all the answer that I need, but I think our intern is going to uh, need more for his uh, supplemental. Maybe so, the intern should stick to learning to get coffee correctly. Go to Mocha in Yemen in 1560. There's a great place. And, and what was the so what was the threat to the time, to the Renaissance that the white dough fixed? The, the threat to the Renaissance. The threat to the Renaissance is Petrarch, uh, the guy who starts the Renaissance by beginning the humanist movement by being the intellectual. Uh, dynamo that starts off the movement of humanism, examining the inner life, examining uh, the, the world through through new eyes. Deciding how sonnets ought to go. Deciding how sonnets ought to go, writing in Italian, championing the, the arts and the letters of the classics, just being the guy. Uh, it turned out that he had um, decided to go on a series of nature hikes instead and didn't care about the Renaissance, thought it was stupid. Because he was... Uh, uh, whining because this girl, Laura, didn't love him back. He had fallen in love with a girl named Laura, um, uh, who may or may not have been Laura Desaad. We don't know that. Uh, I didn't ask because if the last thing you want to do is talk to a guy who's moping about his girlfriend, anything about that. We weren't that close, Petrarch and I. That's what I'm trying to say. So, um, he's he moping about Laura. Uh, yeah, he's not, you're not super standoffish. I mean, you're literally the smartest person in the world. That does make you seem like kind of an arrogant jackass to some he people. Was just, he was just in his head a lot. Exactly. Inaccessible yeah, he was. But, um, so he, he's moping about that and he goes off on a mountain climb, uh, trip, uh, and just, he f- goes up at the top of Mount Vento in the French Alps, I guess, somewhere, Provence, uh, rather. And, uh, he loves it so much that he says, I should just climb a bunch of mountains. And he becomes a mountaineer and wandering uh, teacher, teaches in a bunch of uh, uh, sort of uh, academies and whatnot all over northern Italy and uh, southern France. Very, very helpful to a lot of people, but no Renaissance. So um, since I knew that Petrarch had written a, a poem about the white doe, which represented his love for Laura and how it was not to be, and that there were no white does left in the world because the white doe would would die, and so would Laura, and everything sucks. And he's very emo about it. I thought, well, what better way to get him down off his damn mountain and paying attention to the Renaissance than unleash a white doe and have it lead him down the mountain, possibly to a better understanding of the cyclical nature of things and the fact that the classical beauty of the world can come back. And also a, a man with a time machine yeah. uh, may not know where all of the white does in history are, but he knows where the famous white does. Are. I know where a guaranteed magic white doe is, and it's the one in Sertorius's camp. Uh, also, it helps if you put a little uh, doe kibble into P- uh, Petrarch's pocket when he's not looking so that uh, when the doe shows up, it goes over to Petrarch and it nuzzles him and he reaches into his pocket where the doe is nuzzling and he pulls out his copy of the Confessions of St. Augustine and says, oh, goodness, look at that. It's everything that is wise and true in the world that I've been neglecting with my foolish mountaining and my even more foolish uh, mooning after Laura, who is married to another person. Goodness sake, Petrarch, just get it together. That's all I wanted to say. But uh, the doe uh, reminded Petrarch of his own symbol- symbolism, creating the necessary conditions for the Renaissance to occur. So once Petrarch had patted the doe and everyone had a good time, we'd take him some selfies and talked about St. Augustine instead of his girlfriend. Doe and I go away, back to uh, Sertorius's camp. Uh, Petrarch goes on, and there's a Renaissance, and you're welcome, Italy. Right. And the doe doesn't actually talk, so it can't uh, reveal that it's been elsewhere. Well, Petrarch doesn't go to sleep, so if it talks, it doesn't talk to him because he's not sleeping. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I, th- that is such a, an, an interesting and surprising story that I'm surprised uh, that you didn't have time to write it down. But I, I guess I you're... don't. I don't know how uh, you've seen the form because uh, security is apparently super loose. Uh, you know how big that box for office use only is. You can't write all that in a box. 
Uh, right, and I, I think they do kind of tend to resist uh, uh, the narrative format that they this do. segment excels in, uh, because this, this segment is not a mere bureaucratic report. It's just simply the, the truth of what happens in the time stream. And now it, it that comes from the heart. Yes. Like so the now works that we've of Petrarch, again, perhaps. Establish the real truth of the time stream, so uh, folks, you can go, whether you're writing about Sertorius or Petrarch, you can now write this in your term papers, and you'll absolutely get an A if you reveal these facts. Uh, we can uh, call this a, uh, a a podcast, Ken, and, and exit off into the sunset uh, with or without our own uh, magical albino wildlife. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagam. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Join such doe-eyed patrons as... Drew Clory. Andrew Lalibert. Andrew Miller. Arc Dream Publishing. And Steve K. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>